0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Bianca Mugeni and Martin Lukash. The Leap Manifesto was launched in September 2015. Earlier in that year, a small group of journalist-activists, most notably Naomi Klein, author of a number of books, including This Changes Everything about the climate crisis, had convened a gathering of leaders, representatives, organizers, and activists from a broad cross-section of social movements and communities in struggle in the Canadian context, and that gathering produced the 1400-word manifesto. Even before its launch, it had been endorsed not only by many labor, environmental, indigenous, and progressive faith organizations, and by political figures like Stephen Lewis and Canadian Labour Congress President Hassan Youssef, but also by many Canadian artists, actors, and celebrities, from Ellen Page to Ashley Collingbull, Leonard Cohen to Rachel McAdams, Donald Sutherland to Michael Ondaatje. And when the Leap Manifesto was released in September, the nation's attention was already on political questions because the federal election that ultimately led to the downfall of Stephen Harper's Conservatives was in full swing. All of the ingredients were in place to generate the kind of attention that a sweeping vision for change of this sort hasn't received in Canada in generations. Martin Lukash writes for the UK-based newspaper The Guardian, and he's been involved in research, in organizing the initial meetings that wrote the manifesto, and in communication strategy for the project. Bianca Mugeni joined the project in the summer of 2015 as an organizer, and as the project's outreach coordinator. The Leap Manifesto begins from the multiple crises facing Canada. Climate change, deepening poverty and inequality, histories and current realities of colonialism, exclusions based on race and gender and citizenship, and much more. It sees these crises as inextricably linked, and argues that any effective paths to addressing them must recognize these interconnections. It paints a broad vision for change, but avoids getting stuck in the utopian by demanding concrete steps to begin moving in that direction. It calls for Canada to respect the treaties with and inherent rights of indigenous peoples, to grant immigration status to all migrant workers, to end the construction of new fossil fuel extraction infrastructure and move to green energy and a green economy on demanding but doable timelines, to resolutely oppose anti-democratic trade deals and government policies of austerity, to support indigenous and other frontline communities first during the transition away from fossil fuels, to implement a massive green infrastructure program, to invest in retraining impacted workers, and to put in place new supports for low-carbon sectors of the economy, which it understands to include not just things like installing solar panels, but also existing low-carbon work like services, arts, media, and the extensive waged and unwaged caring labor that we all depend on. Since its release, the manifesto has been the target of quite a bit of criticism. Some has come from elements of the radical left, including for the fact that the manifesto is not explicitly anti-capitalist, and that the process that produced it was not broader and more grassroots. But much more of the criticism has come from a mainstream that stretches from some conservative social democrats to the hard right of the Canadian elite for the manifesto's significant challenge to the status quo in this country. In my conversation with Mugeni and Lukash, we did spend a fair bit of time talking about the details of the document. In part because of the widespread mainstream attention that it has already received, and in part because of how easy it is for listeners to read for themselves at leapmanifesto.org, I haven't included much of that part of the conversation in the episode, beyond the description I just provided. Instead, the included conversation focuses not on the document, but on the extensive work by a great many people that produced it, that released it, and that are now organizing around it. On today's show, I talk with Mujeni and Lukash about what they and many others have done and continue to do to use the Leap Manifesto as a tool to build towards a just, sustainable future. We spoke by Skype to phone from Montreal.
1: My name is Bianca, and I work for This Changes Everything and Elite Leap Manifesto. I joined in the summer of 2015 to help launch the manifesto. I spend most of my time doing outreach. I am the outreach coordinator.
2: I'm a journalist. I write for the British Guardian, and I've been a member of the This Changes Everything team for about two or three years now, first as a researcher and impact producer on the This Changes Everything film, then as a communication strategist working for Naomi Klein during the launch of the This Changes Everything book, and then I've been one of the organizers and conveners of the coalition that initially wrote the Leap Manifesto and then have been involved in helping roll out the manifesto since then.
1: The manifesto is a positive vision of the kind of country that we want to live in. We've been calling it a people's agenda for where we want to go, and this takes into account the multiple crises that we're facing. So this would be the inequality crisis, climate crisis, of course, the economic crisis, and things like exclusion on the basis of race, gender, and so on. It sees these issues as inextricably linked. And it also acknowledges both the necessity of moving to a post-carbon Canada, and also the feasibility of that. And all of this is within the context of a much larger vision, that sees green jobs, for instance, as more than what I think is traditionally understood as a green job. So someone working on solar, wind, but we're saying that green jobs are actually a really large, low-carbon economy that includes things like media, teachers, daycare, people who are in the arts. And these are the same sort of professions that have been slowly but surely eroded by the mentality of austerity and that are underfunded. And part of this larger vision is that we want for this to be embedded in the principles of climate justice which means that we would want this manifest to be something that would help to right the wrongs of our colonial legacy, and that would also understand that those who have been the worst hit by colonization, by climate change, by extractive projects, should be the first in line to benefit from the new renewable carbon economy. And it's called the LEAP in large part because the word that was conjured up for us that encapsulated the boldness and the type of action that was required was the LEAP. And I guess this is also going back to this positive vision and this idea of this energy transition as something that is not a dark and gloomy path full of sacrifice, but something that we can look forward to and that would be beneficial to the vast majority of people.
0: Tell me about the process that led to the Leap Manifesto.
2: The Canadian work comes out of a much broader, even global film and book outreach project called This Changes Everything the people behind this project have always had the belief that books themselves don't actually change the world. Social movements do. And so we wanted to think more ambitiously about what it would look like if we really put the book and the film in the hands of movements as a tool. And so there was a outreach strategy around the film, which you know included breaking some of the norms around how a film gets rolled out. So you saw movements around the world really using the film And we had had two initial movement meetings in the states, one in San Francisco and one in New York, where we brought together people from, you know, the environmental world, indigenous organizers, labor unionists, people working in trade and financial justice, Black Lives Matter organizers. We discovered that the book and the film had a real power to convene people across movements and to help break down silos. But what we discovered is that after these two organizing meetings in the States, we weren't really offering those organizers any kind of enduring campaign or initiative to work around to extend those alliances or those initial first contacts that had been made. And so we started thinking about what we could do in Canada that would more ambitiously create some kind of track to make those kinds of relationships and alliances enduring. And so we decided we would try to do a similar kind of meeting that had been done in the States. You know, bring together representatives, leaders, activists from various social movements, bring them together into a meeting. And initially, we had wanted to put out a kind of statement or manifesto that would fit on a postcard. And we failed originally to do that. The document ended up being something like 1,400 words. But we wanted to project, as Bianca was saying earlier, a positive, hopeful, galvanizing vision to really help spark thinking about how we can get off this single commodity roller coaster economy that we've been hitched to in Canada. Ultimately the convening itself ended up taking a broader vision than just a shift from the fossil fuel economy off of it. It changed in part because it was shaped so deeply by all the different social movement sectors that then got involved in the process.
1: As Morton was saying, the role that this changes everything really more. And I was brought on as a community organizer in very much of a campaign role to roll out the manifesto and to bring as much public attention to it as possible. So after this process that Martin was mentioning, there was a bit of feedback on the manifesto. It was strengthened, and then the message was ready to share. And ultimately, it is words on paper. And as beautiful as they are, we knew that we needed to present them in a way that was appealing and that brought these ideas to life. We started with art. We thought we could reach people that we may not be able to otherwise. And so we commissioned pieces from three up and coming artists to visually interpret the manifesto. The next thing that we did to make the manifesto as accessible as possible to as many people living in Canada was to translate it into many of the languages that actually represent what people speak here in Canada. We had planned to translate it into a few languages, but on suggestions from allies, we decided to translate it first into eight languages, French, Chinese, Tagalog, Punjabi, Inuktitut, Spanish, Cree, Arabic. And then we had volunteers after it was launched that translated into other languages. And so now I think there's about 13 translations and more coming in. And we also turned to policy analysts and economists to equip people and partners who were going to be signing on to this document with the confidence that they needed to speak to it, to say where is this money actually going to come from, and is it possible kind of cost the manifesto. The next stage, which I think really brought a lot of attention to the manifesto, was the strategy of engaging high-profile Canadian cultural and political figures, luminaries. This was conceived of as bringing this message to a much larger stage and back to people ultimately via, I guess, celebrity or high-profile cultural images. So we asked a lot of people to sign the manifesto. And what was incredibly exciting and genuinely surprising was the number of people that signed onto it. And by the time we launched, we had, I think, about 100 initiating signatories of that sort of profile. And also key was that we were joined by a wide variety of groups, and many of these helped in the drafting of the document as well. So this was most of the public service unions, Hassan Youssef, the head of the CLC, faith-based groups like Kairos, Indigenous groups like Idle Hamor and Defenders of the Land, groups like Oxfam and Greenpeace. All these groups signed on and also helped us to spread the word through their network on the day of our launch. So we launched the manifesto in September, and we were joined by Sarah Harmer, the musician, Maud Barlow, the head of the Council of Canadians. We have two Cardinal actors, Poet Laureate, George Eliot Clark, and also Ashley Collinville, the first Indigenous Miss Universe. We did a reading of the manifesto, and then a Twitter storm erupted, and then we were suddenly in every national newspaper.
2: To put it lightly, the corporate media threw a tantrum. I mean, we know that the corporate and, you know, state media in this country play a integral role in defining the limits of debate and dissent in this country. And the document is, you know, not a outlandishly radical document, but in many ways it does run up against most of the key neoliberal ideological pillars of our age. And the media just simply weren't having it. There was a real attempt by the media through derision and contempt to just shut down debate about it. But what was ironic is that all the hubbub that they generated about it actually led people to read it and to consider the document. And it led to a huge spike in signatories. I think within the first week, we had about twenty, twenty-five thousand 25,000 people who signed the document and an increasing number of organizations, to the point at which now we have about 200 organizations who have signed the document. And what we found is that when people actually started reading it and considering it, they liked it, and the tie starts to turn, including in the media, and it was part of the electoral debate for two or three weeks. I mean, one of the reasons we decided to launch it during the election period was that we felt that none of the political parties, certainly including the NDP, were putting forward a vision that was bold enough or commensurate with the crises that we're confronting in this country. And we discovered that the political party that was most able to present itself, not in actuality of its policies, but was most able to present itself rhetorically and stylistically as the vehicle for that bold change, namely Prince Justin Trudeau, was the political party that ended up resoundingly winning Canadians' votes.
0: So since those two moments have passed... Of the novelty of the launch and then the intense focus on political questions that comes with an election campaign. What have you been doing to push forward with creating momentum and visibility for the Leap Manifesto? This
1: isn't going to go anywhere without lots and lots of people taking it on. We can barely keep up with what's coming our way. And what we need to see is more of what's happening, right? Which is widespread discussion, action to generate real political momentum. We would like to build a force, and that is happening to a certain extent. One of the things that we've been seeing since we launched is that other manifestos, for instance, have been inspired that are more relevant to various regions. So there are activists in Australia who are working on their own version of the Leap and have met to hash that out. It inspired a European Green Manifesto. There's a Leap Manifesto that's been voted upon and adopted for the North Bronx in the U.S. It inspired a manifesto project at the front lines of climate change in Nunavut, and I had the opportunity to go there, actually, to deliver a workshop and to strategize with folks there. And uh, that's actually one example of how important it was to do our translation into Inuktitut. Women that I talked to told me that this is definitely part of what had engaged them and their communities. So one of the strategies, for sure, has been this idea of localizing the leap. And also action. So in November, for instance, there was a rally that was organized and supported elite by QP during their convention, and that saw, I think, around 2,000 people come out. Martin went out for that. And again, this is really significant because this is a rally that's calling for a Canada that we do want. Most people go out to protest things that they don't want. We contributed the climate welcome gift to the newly elected prime minister as well as part of the climate welcome. We had a big sprained Leap Manifesto for his mantle. There was all kinds of events that were happening. It was like momentum partially on its own, which was interesting. You know, it's like we have a strategy, but sometimes a strategy comes at you from the responses that are received. So we were seeing things like gatherings and discussions, film screenings, or incredibly creative high schoolers in Nelson that were doing tapestry projects for the Leap. There was YouTube videos and university profs that were expanding on the messages of the Leap. So just people really sort of taking ownership of it and running with it. So again, the strategy really for us is to really build the kind of numbers that no government can ignore.
2: It's often pre-existing formations or political parties who generate manifestos as orienting visions for the work that they're doing. We always knew that the Leap manifesto wasn't in itself something that could be campaigned around in the way that, for instance, the Fight for 15 is...
0: Uh, and for listeners who aren't familiar with the Fight for 15, that's the banner under which many struggles to increase the minimum wage are happening in jurisdictions across North America. You can search online for past episodes of Talking Radical Radio that talked about the Fight for 15 campaign as it is happening in British Columbia and Ontario, respectively.
2: Or, you know, some of the early struggles, I don't know more, to block particular kinds of omnibus legislation more particular kinds of campaigns to take down one specific policy or another. And ultimately, that's the way that we're going to rebuild the left in this country through the momentum and the people and the infrastructure that gets built around particular campaigns. But we have found that And this was one of our hopes is that the Leap Manifesto would get used as an organizing, as a pedagogical, as a political tool. So, for instance, Bianca mentioned QP, Canada's largest public sector union, taking on the Leap Manifesto as a tool to push the broader union and their membership to think much more holistically about the political challenge that's before us. So, like, because they organized a the LEAP rally, they, for instance, invited speakers from, you know, the refugee rights and migrant justice movement in Vancouver had a really central role for indigenous representatives. So there's a way in which because to simplify things, the manifesto has been used as a tool to push organizations, bigger institutions, a little bit leftward and push them in more of a holistic direction. Also, the opportunity that comes with using climate change as the strongest argument we have to strengthen the progressive agenda, the leftist agenda that we've already been fighting for. In that way, we've seen it taken up as a political tool. And I guess the most turbulent and exciting way in which it's been picked up as a tool is the most recent usage within the NDP. In the run up to the NDP's recent convention, there were a number of grassroots activists in the party who saw the Leap Manifesto as a kind of crystallization of the direction in which they felt the party should go. There were about 20 writing associations that passed the resolutions calling on the party to, you know, adopt or debate the Leap Manifesto. Once that had happened, we supported the process somewhat of bringing that kind of debate to the convention itself, and it ended up being the main policy flashpoint. You saw a majority of the party, in the end, endorse this resolution to bring the debate around the LEAP manifesto to the Riding Association level for the next two years. And I think the LEAP now is serving as a political touchstone for debate about whether the NDP will try to go through a process of renewal and try to present a much more bold and perhaps even slightly deprofessionalized party that can actually fight on the basis of a much more bold, unapologetically left political agenda.
1: One of the strategic things that we've been trying to do is to amplify the amazing activism that is happening right now. So we have a site that's part of LeapManifesto.org called Leap Year 2016, where we have been posting and celebrating all of the incredible stuff that's happening across Canada and around the world. Right now, there's break free from fossil fuels that's starting up. There's the People's Climate Plan. So trying to increase the accessibility, using that as responsibly as we can, but also calling for action in the knowledge that people need opportunities to act. I don't think that there's a lack of want or interest, but I do think that people need to be connected to each other. So one of the things that we did in terms of taking the manifesto to different spaces, was we took it internationally to Paris and we did workshops there. That was actually very similar to the discussion to the one we're having now about the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of how we actually launched it. Like what was involved in doing it? How did we roll it out? How did we get it off the ground? And when we returned to Canada, one of the things that we decided to do was to put out a call for action around Leap year. The idea of leap year was this metaphor of like every four years, we add a day to the calendar to bring the calendar back into sync with the Earth's revolution around the sun. And The idea is that it's, of course, easier to change human systems than it is to try and change the laws of nature. And so with literally one month's notice, we put the big call out for action with some tools, things on our website that could help. And we asked people to kick off the leap year with a push for justice based transition with whatever kind of event they thought spoke to them and was meaningful in their communities. And this was incredibly successful. So, from Vancouver to PEI to Zagreb and Copenhagen, there were teachings and film screenings, there were solar installations, community forums. In Nelson, there was a 24 hour sit in that high schoolers held in support of the leap. In Fort Chihuahuan, there was a Leap Day installation of solar panels. The Raging Granny raged for social justice and sung a Leap-inspired anthem at one of the local malls. There were dozens and dozens of actions with hundreds of groups that were involved in one way or another. One of the most exciting things that happened for Leap Day was that we were approached by folks at the Friends of Public Services and CUPW.
2: This is probably one of the the most exciting offshoots of the Leap Manifesto itself, and that is an actual campaign that we have launched in alliance with the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and the Friends for Public Services. The postal workers have been under relentless attack by Canada Post, who have for many years wanted to essentially privatize the postal service. So there's been this relentless attack on this public service, as with so many others in this country. And what was unique about this proposal for a campaign that Friends of Public Services and the Postal Workers brought to us was that instead of just being on the defensive, we would actually uh, shift to a aggressive, proactive, visionary posture. There are twice as many post offices as Tim Hortons in this country, so you can just imagine the kind of potential that it has. Why not use that untapped potential to re envision what a public service in an age of climate crisis would look like. The idea would be to turn the postal network and postal offices into hubs for a new green economy in this country. And we think as we've started to roll this proposal out with the postal workers, most people who hear about it are really excited by it because they understand that a public service reconceived like this could actually solve multiple problems at once.
0: Where do you plan to take the organizing next? So
1: right now we're in a process of expanding the organizational tools that we have online. So I'd encourage people to check back there. We are in the process of putting together a film as well, a short film to amplify the message of the LEAP and bring it to a wider audience, increase its accessibility. So people should watch out for that as well. Part of the tools are to encourage more regional manifestos, more regional groups, We have a few like in Peterborough and Sudbury that are really great models of what's going on across the country. We're encouraging more LEAP events and creative actions, as well as people joining the public conversation by writing to their local papers, writing in their blogs, and so on and so forth, encouraging people that they know to read and sign the manifesto, and, you know, to help us build this pressure. Hopefully, this is just the beginning. We have to think big and we have to come together. We're curious and excited to see where we take this together and to figure out together what comes next.
2: And the other thing to look out for is that because the NDP passed this motion to debate the Leap Manifesto at the local writing level, you are going to be seeing a whole bunch of town halls, debates, all kinds of forums being set up in many cases by NDP writing associations and in other cases by activists who are working autonomously from the NDP, but sometimes in collaboration with local writing associations to put these kind of events on, to push the NDP in that leftist, holistic, unapologetically bold direction as the party tries to renew itself.
1: And one of the upcoming opportunities to find out more about the LEAD, get involved, is the upcoming World Social Forum, where we're going to have a few events. We're going to be participating in the opening march. And we're hoping that this can be a space for people to connect around the LEAP, both regionally and somatically. So we hope to see people there. If you know anyone that's going and would like to pick up materials to bring back to your own communities, that's a great place to do that.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Bianca Mujeni and Martin Lukash about the organizing that has been happening around the LEAP Manifesto. To learn more about it, go to leapmanifesto.org. That's all one word. Leapmanifesto.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.